Good evening, and welcome to Dig This. My name's Tom Levy from the Department of Anthropology at UCSD. And tonight, continuing our series on biblical archaeology, I'm especially pleased to welcome Professor David Goodblatt from the Department of History and Judaic Studies here at UCSD. Hi, David. Hi, Tom. Great to have you with us. Nice to be here. You're a specialist on post-biblical uh, history. Um, how would you define that discipline? Well, it's a little tricky, but um, the period begins after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews returned from Babylonia, uh, the end of the 6th century before the Common Era, and I go right through to the rise of Islam in the 7th century of the Common Era. So, one of the central issues in that field of, of post-biblical studies would be the famous Jewish revolts against Rome. Could you tell us about the two revolts? Right. There were at least two, maybe even three. Uh, from the middle of the second century, say about 142, before the Common Era, till the beginning of the Common Era, for about 150 years, there was an independent state of Judah. It was created by the family of Judah the Maccabee, the Hasmoneans, and they were succeeded by Herod and his family. And it was, in effect, an independent state. At the beginning of the uh, first millennium, the Romans took over and converted what had been an independent state to a province in the Roman Empire. The state lost its independence. Well, as often happens, people aren't too happy to lose their independence. And uh, in the year 66, the Jews rose up in revolt against the Romans. The revolt lasted about four, four or five years. The Romans suppressed it. Um, but then 60 years later, the Jews in Judah rebelled again in 132. And again, they lasted a few years before the Romans suppressed the revolt. So these are the first and second Jewish revolts against Rome. Now, what are the historical sources that we have um, for those revolts? In the case of the first revolt, we're in pretty good shape because we have a very detailed history by somebody who was an eyewitness, who was a participant. He fought on the Jewish side, and then he was captured by the Romans, and he saw the end of the war from the Roman side. Man, uh, his Hebrew name was Joseph, but we know him better by the Latin form of his name, Josephus. And he wrote a detailed account of the war. In addition, there's archaeological evidence, the famous uh, fortress at Masada, uh, there are coins issued by the rebel Jewish government. So we have a pretty good picture. In the case of the Second Revolt, uh, if somebody wrote a history of it, that history has not survived. Mm -hmm. So all we had were some coins and some very brief notices in some ancient historians, and we really didn't know very much. Until about 1960, uh, the archaeologists discovered near the Dead Sea um, a number of documents uh, from the period of the Second Revolt, and among them were documents issued by the rebel government, by the Jewish rebels. Among them were letters written by the leader of the rebel government. Um, this was a very exciting discovery because before then we didn't even know the name of the leader of the rebellion. We knew his nickname. His nickname was Bar Kochba, which means son of a star, but this was clearly a nickname. Uh, we didn't know what his first name was. There were coins, and there were names on the coins, but we weren't sure who they were. 
thanks to these discoveries uh, in the middle of the last century, we now know for sure the name of the leader was Simon, Simon, son of Kosoba. Mm -hmm. We have some idea of how his government was organized. We have some idea of how the rebel uh, forces were, were divided and, and organized. And all of this were things that, that when I was an undergraduate, nobody knew. I'm fascinated by this character, Josephus. Was he a, a real historian? Would you call him a historian? Or? Absolutely. Um, he was a member of the priestly aristocracy in Jerusalem. Um, as a young man, he had visited Rome, very impressed by the power and might of the Roman Empire. And when he returned to Jerusalem, uh, shortly after his return, the revolt broke out. And as part of the traditional aristocracy, he was given a position of leadership in the rebel government. He was sent to the Galilee to serve as a general there to organize the defenses of the Galilee. And uh, he claims that he did a very good job, but was unable to stand up to the might of the Roman Empire, and, and uh, he was taken captive. And although he downplays this, it seems that by the end of the war, he was serving the Romans as an interpreter, helping in interrogation of Jewish captives. We're not completely sure. When the war is over, he goes back to Rome. The Roman generals who suppressed the revolt, the chief general became the emperor of Ro in Rome, Vespasian. And uh, this, the fact that Josephus knew him so well from the tour of duty in Judah put Josephus in a pretty good position. Um, the Emperor Vespasian gave Josephus a house in which to live, gave him a salary uh, on which to live, and Josephus devoted his time to writing historical works. So I think we consider him uh, a good historian. The problem is, like all historians, he was biased. He had his biases. He had his axes to grind. And we have to be careful not to take everything he says at face value, to read what he writes with, with a lot of soul, with a lot of grains of soul. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there's enough detail that we have a pretty good idea of the course of, of the revolt. Now, how did, how did these documents that Josephus wrote uh, survive? Well, Josephus's books um, survived. They were copied from generation to generation. The reason they survived, uh, his books were not preserved by his Jewish compatriots. His books were preserved by Christians. Mm -hmm. And the reason that Christians were interested in preserving the writings of Josephus is because in another one of his books, a book called uh, commonly known as the Jewish Antiquities, which is a history of the Jews before the revolt, in that book he mentions John the Baptist and Jesus. Because of this, the church found his work very valuable. Here was a Jewish author in the first century who mentioned Jesus and John the Baptist. So because of that, the church was interested in preserving his works. His, his books were copied from generation to generation and so survived into the middle, late Middle Ages and then were printed. And um, are these the only extra biblical, if you like, uh, sources about that period of Jesus, or are there other it's the documents? Earliest, it's the earliest extra-biblical uh, reference to Jesus, the earliest reference outside the New Testament, yes. So how, does, uh, how do the revolts uh, play into this period? It sounds like a really dynamic period of time when you had Jesus... Uh, you, you had the Jews revolting against Rome. 
What, what else was going on in that? Well, period? this was really the early part of the Roman Empire in the sense that Rome had been expanding uh, for centuries. And uh, by the first century, they had penetrated into Southwest Asia, into Syria and, and Judah, and so on. Um, but the empire was still relatively new. It was still a relatively new creation. Uh, we look back now with the benefit of hindsight. We know this was a very powerful empire that lasted for centuries. But people living in the first century didn't know that. Uh, and so the Jews might have had a realistic expectation that they could throw off the Roman yoke and regain their independence. Uh, again, looking back with hindsight, we know there was, they didn't have a chance. But people living at the time thought differently particularly if they thought that God would help them and that they had God on their side, and that, that that could make the difference. Um, there were other rebellions in the Roman Empire, but um, the Jews were in many ways the most stubborn. In fact, they, they had a total of three rebellions against Rome. There was another one um, around 114, 115. Um, and the Romans came to see the Jews as troublemakers, always rebelling. And in fact, after the failure of the Bar Kochva revolt in 135, the Romans decided they better punish the Jews. And one of the act, one of the things the Romans did to punish the Jewish rebels was to change the name of the country. The Romans had called the province Judea, which is the Latin form of Judah, which had been the traditional name of the country. In 135, the Roman Empire decided that he'd had enough of the Jews in their country, Judea. And so we changed the name of the province to Syria-Palestina, Syrian-Palestine. Mm -hmm. Now, had he not changed the name of the province, had the country continued to be called Judah, I wonder if our contemporary history might have come out a little differently than it has been. Well, didn't the Romans uh, throw the Jews out of the, the country? Uh, not exactly. Um, Clearly, a lot, especially in the first revolt, which was more widespread geographically, uh, there was a lot of devastation, a lot of destruction of property. A lot of people were killed. A lot of people were taken as uh, slaves or sold on the slave markets. Uh, but the population seems to have recovered. Uh, and the fact that 60 years later the Jews felt strong enough to try again and mount a second revolt shows that the population had recovered. After the Second Revolt in, in 135, um, there seems to have been a decline in the Jewish population in the heart of Judah around Jerusalem. The emperor, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, uh, rebuilt Jerusalem as a pagan city, mm -hmm. and the Jews apparently were no longer allowed to live there. But the Jewish population remained strong in other parts of the country, in the Galilee, in the, on the periphery of Judah, to the west, to the east, to the south. So the population uh, was not exiled by the Romans. What happened eventually, and this is a long, drawn-out process, was there was a decline uh, in the Jewish population of the province. But that was something that took centuries. And that was sort of a natural population it process? It was, a, uh, in part, a natural population decline. Um, many of the Jews probably converted to Christianity over the centuries. Uh, so the population declined in that way. Because I think um, for the, the general public, we have this idea that the exile uh, was a process where the Jews left uh, what is today Israel and 
they were spread throughout the Roman Empire? Did, did that happen? Well, Jews certainly moved throughout the empire, uh, but it was primarily a voluntary process. People went abroad seeking opportunity the way people do today, hmm. uh, financial opportunity uh, and so on. Um, but no one was forced out. No one, uh, after the, the prisoner, aside from the prisoners of war, no one was forcibly removed. So let's go back to the first revolt and talk a little bit about the, the archaeological evidence for it. What, what do we have in hand that can tell us about this time? Well, there are some very dramatic discoveries uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. Archaeologists have uncovered um, evidence of the destruction when the Romans took the city. Uh, we have houses where we have Roman arrowheads inside the houses, where we have evidence that the houses were burnt. That's, called, that's the upper city of... Uh... Uh, yes, the upper city of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. upper because it's elevated. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, on, it's on one of the hills. There's another very dramatic discovery uh, of, of about 15 years ago where there's a street beneath the Temple Mount that has been uncovered the way it was uh, on the eve of the destruction of the temple in 70, at the end of the first revolt. And there are the stones from the temple that have fallen down, boulders that have fallen down on this pavement when the Romans uh, took the temple building. So there's very dramatic evidence in Jerusalem. There are evidence of other sites, and the most famous one is the one I mentioned earlier, Masada, which was a fortress on a mountaintop mm -hmm. that held out for three or four years after Jerusalem fell. And that was the first revolt. That was in the first mm -hmm. revolt, right. There's also some archaeological evidence uh, from the second revolt. Here, uh, perhaps the most dramatic evidence is, are the caves. Um, an ancient Roman historian told us how the Jewish rebels hid out in caves from the Roman forces, and they dug this network of caves in which to store supplies and weapons and caves that could serve as places of refuge. In the past 20 years or so, archaeologists have uncovered many of these caves that served as places of refuge, and they found um, evidence of, of the people who hid out there from the Roman forces. Um, of course, the documents that I mentioned earlier were also very important archaeological evidence regarding the Second Revolt. Now, what, what is it like to, for the archaeologists to, to excavate one of these caves? Is it a, are these just, you just walk up to the cave and, and, and go inside and begin to excavate, or are they difficult to get to? Or? Some of them are, are difficult to get to because they're on the sides of cliffs. Others are of easier access. Um, often the entrances to the caves have been blocked by falling stones over the centuries. Uh, but once the archaeologists get in, in many cases, uh, there's not too much to clear on the inside. Now, you did some research on the coins from the revolt. Right. What, what, did, what did they uh, inform you about? Well, coins in the ancient world were the sound bites. Uh, these were the method by which governments, including the rebel government, tried to state its case to make its, uh, what it was fighting for known, uh, particularly, to, particularly to its own population. So when we study the coins of the revolts, we get some ideas of what the rebel governments were fighting for. And this is important because the sources, the written sources we have, often don't tell us that. Even in the first revolt, where we have Josephus, Josephus was writing in Rome uh, 
having his salary paid by the Roman emperor. Mm -hmm. He was not going to be completely upfront and honest about what the Jewish rebels were fighting for, because in part they were fighting against Rome. Um, so Josephus doesn't tell us very much. And from the first revolt, we don't have any documents from the rebel government. So the coins are very important. And um, what we see on the coins are the slogans of the rebel government. Mm -hmm. And what one finds on the coins of the First Revolt are slogans like the freedom of Jerusalem, uh, the redemption of Jerusalem, the freedom of Zion. These were the slogans uh, of the First Revolt. They were fighting for Jerusalem. They were fighting for Zion. The coins of the Second Revolt, you get similar but slightly different slogans. There you find the freedom of Israel, the redemption of Israel. They used the word Israel they used in the, the word, Second Revolt, but not in the First. The First Revolt used the name Israel on the coins as a denomination. The denomination of the coins, they were shekel coins, that was a certain weight, and the coins have the uh, legend, the shekel of Israel. Now, there are some documents which may come from the First Revolt. We're not sure. For a long time, people thought these were documents from the Second Revolt. Now, some people think they're from the First Revolt. They mentioned the freedom of Israel. So, by the First Revolt, they were using the name Israel. They were using the name Zion. And these were the goals, the freedom of Israel, the freedom of Zion that, that they were fighting for. Second Revolt, the freedom of Israel. Now, if you take the archaeological remains from the revolts and you plot it on a map, can you see where the hot spots were? And we see this especially clearly in the Second Revolt. Mm -hmm. Again, because we don't have a detailed history, we weren't sure what was the geographical extent of the Second Revolt, where they were fighting. When you plot where the coins were discovered, it becomes very clear that the Second Revolt was restricted to the territory of Judah in the narrow sense, the southern part of the country. Unlike the First Revolt, where there was fighting in the Galilee, where there was fighting across the Jordan River, the Second Revolt was more limited geographically, just to the southern part of the country, let's say from Jerusalem uh, to the Dead Sea, west into the foothills. So that we can see thanks to the evidence of where the coins were found. It's very clear. So after the revolt, um, you have a period of, say, 300 years when uh, the Jews actually flourish in the country. Is that right? In, well, the, in, from, in what's called the Byzantine period? Right. From the end of the Second Revolt in 135, you actually have 500 years till the Arab conquest of the country in the 7th century. During this period, the Roman Empire becomes Christian. When it does, the Holy Land, be because it's holy to Christianity, becomes important to the Roman government. The Romans invest a lot of money building churches in the major cities. Uh, Christianity flourishes in uh, late Roman and Byzantine, especially Byzantine Palestine. And historians used to think that as Christianity flourished, the Jews suffered. And in fact, there are laws on the books that, that for example, forbid the Jews to build new synagogues. But then the archaeologists came along and dug throughout the country and discovered dozens and dozens of synagogues that were built precisely in the Byzantine period. 
that were built precisely at the time that according to the law books, the Jews weren't supposed to be allowed to build new synagogues. Now, obviously, these laws were not enforced. And in fact, it's in these centuries, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth centuries, that we have um, the largest numbers of monumental synagogues that were built in the country, many of them with with beautiful decorations, mosaic floors, um, very well-built, very well-furnished. Clearly, what this tells us is that the Jewish communities at the time flourished no less than, than the Christian inhabitants of the country. So why do we have this disjuncture between, um, let's say, accepted historical fact and the archaeological facts on the ground? Well, the accepted historical fact tended to be based on written sources, literary sources that emphasized um, they saw the half-empty cup rather than the half-full cup. And there was a tendency in certain sources to complain, to lament, there was a tendency in um, the earlier, among earlier students of the history to accentuate the negative. And we didn't have the archaeological evidence. Thanks to the archaeological evidence, we now have a more balanced picture. We now see the positive as well as the negative, and the positive is very strong. So if you were going to characterize this period uh, of uh, the Jewish presence in the Holy Land, in the Byzantine period, was this a, a multi-ethnic communi- uh, community living in the land? Absolutely. The country was clearly a uh, multi-ethnic and multicultural. Um, let's begin with the multicultural. If you went to the cities, the dominant language would be Greek. You'd probably hear or see some Latin as well, uh, but you would also hear Aramaic, a Semitic language related to Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Out in the countryside, you'd hear a lot more Aramaic uh, and, and obviously less Greek and Latin. Uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural, you had Jews, you had Christians, you had Samaritans. Till the 6th century, you had pagans. Uh, you had people from all over the Roman Empire because it was a holy land. You had Christian pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire from the West. Many of them settled uh, in the country. You had Armenian Christians. Um, you had Christians from the East as well visiting the country. So it was really, a, it truly was a multi-ethnic and multicultural place. So at the end of that period, when you have the, um, the uh, Islamic period, yeah. what happened to the different communities living in uh, the Holy Land? Well, this is something else that we've learned from archaeology that we weren't aware of before. It used to be that historians saw the, um, the Arab conquest of the country around 640 as a very sharp turning point. Thanks to archaeology, we now see that there was a lot of continuity between the late Byzantine and the early Islamic period. Focusing just on the Jewish population, a lot of these monumental synagogues that I referred to that were built in the 5th or 6th centuries, a lot of them continued into the 8th century. Uh, They survived the Islamic conquest. They continued to be used. The Jewish communities uh, continued to exist and to to flourish and continued to worship and and repair and and refurbish and remodel these synagogues. So we now are aware that that the Islamic conquest obviously brought about a change and over time a very radical one. 
But in the space of the first 100, 150 years, the change was gradual, and there really was a lot of continuity, much more than we had realized. And, and again, archaeology has played a central role in, in showing us that this was the case. So is the concept of an Islamic conquest a kind of stereotype? No, no. There's still a conquest. It's just that the Arabization of the country the, and Islamicization of the country, that is the um, Islam becoming the dominant religion, the Arabic language becoming the dominant language, this took longer than we had realized. It didn't happen overnight. It took a century or so to take place. And uh, till that happened, and even after it happened, there was still the presence of the pre-Islamic communities and the pre-Islamic cultures in the country. And the Jewish population uh, continued to live in the land throughout it history? Well, or? there were ups and downs. The Crusades uh, were a difficult period. Uh, when the Crusaders came in, the Jews often were targets. The Jewish population dwindled uh, during the Crusades. But then with the restoration of uh, the Muslim uh, rule, the Jewish communities recovered. And uh, since then, there, there has been continuity. I think a lot of uh, people don't realize how, how well the Jewish populations got along with the Islamic groups uh, throughout history, and that perhaps today is sort of a blip on, on the radar screen of a, of a, of a long-term historical process where people got along better, the two communities got along well, the communities got along. The, um, the Jewish community, like, like the Christian community, were recognized by the Islamic authorities as peoples of the book, that is, peoples who have a true revelation, which Islam recognized. And as a result, they were extended the status of dhimmi, of a tolerated minority. And that status did allow the Jews to flourish, um, but as a tolerated minority, not as an equal group, uh, not as a group with, with equal rights to the majority. Uh, that would be the difference today, and one, one hopes that the contemporary Jewish community will be accepted as a community with equal rights. Well, uh, Professor Goodblatt, David, I'd like to thank you so much for bringing us up on post-biblical studies and I hope you'll come back uh, for another visit. Well, I'd be happy to do so, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, my guest this evening has been Professor David Goodblatt from the Department of History at UCSD. My name's Tom Levy, and I hope you'll join me again soon. <laughs>